Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you this morning as we start a new series here at Roval. In uh, 2015, Glenda and I um, had the privilege of um, going with another couple to the United States for a trip from up the east, northeastern coast, so from um, Washington up through New England, down the coast, uh, back to New York. I think it was about four weeks we might be away. Uh, it was a, a wonderful experience of um, seeing some great sites, iconic sites, um, meeting some people, uh, some wonderful people, some unusual people, uh, and eating lots of food. I think that became one of the, me- the um, memorable things about our trip as we think back on the things that we saw was the things that we ate. Things like uh, Ben's chili, uh, chili bowl, it's actually a, a hot dog in a, in a bun, um, people line up for hours for this. They go to the football, sorry, go to the, the um, baseball and um, they eat this. But in, in, the store, in the shop in Washington, they, they line up for hours to get one of these chili burgers and they are awesome if you like, if you like chili. Apple pie in Vermont, place of apples. Lobster rolls in Maine. I think we had three of these. <laughs> Down the coast, not just in that one place. Um, lobster ice cream. Uh, give that a miss. That was pretty ordinary. Um, and then we made our way to New York City. Wow. The food there was just incredible. Fried, oh, sorry, that one there. Fried chicken and waffles. It's an awesome combination. That's what my had. Glenn had a little bit different to that, as you see on her, but I think she had the greens, uh, vegetables that go with, or beans or silver beet, whatever it was with that. Um, a, a um, food crawl through the, de- the Jewish delis of the Lower East Side. Awesome food, these little takeaways that you go and just get little bits along the way. Finishing up, um, oh, that was another one, that was um, a, a che- the New York cheesecake from the original home of the original New York cheesecake in um, Brooklyn. And then this one here. This is a Reuben sandwich from... Cat's Delicatessen, where you have to book to go in there. It is so popular. And I thought, oh, we'll get one each. Oh, Glenn has something a little bit different to this. Um, you could share that with three people, four people probably. It is, it is jaw-breaking. Um, it was just delicious. And lots of other things as well. You weren't hungry before you came here, were you? <laughs> um, not good for the diet, probably. We, we need food to survive. Um, We need to eat or we die. That's the choice we have. But but there's something about food that meets more of the needs we have than just hunger. We eat for things, the other things that are going on in our our life, in our world. When we're sad, when we're lonely, we'll go to the fridge, we'll go and eat something. Um, Who in COVID, have these things called comfort food. Uh, Who during COVID ate lots of food and still sort of trying to get over that. Um, we eat when we celebrate. We have parties. We eat. We came last night. We ate. Someone died. We have a funeral. We eat after the funeral. When we want to get to know someone better, we say, do you want to come for a meal? Do you want to, do you want to go out for coffee next week? We, we love getting together with each other and sharing food together. Do you know who else 
love to eat? His name is Jesus. And he loved food. He loved getting with people and, and just slowing down life and eating with his friends, with those around him. He called himself, you know, the Son of Man, a name he gave himself. The Son of Man comes to eat and to drink. Now the Pharisees saw Jesus doing this. They saw him everywhere he went, eating and drinking, and they said, he's a glutton. He drinks, he's a drunkard. They didn't like him. They, they criticised him for the way that he spent time eating and drinking. A guy by the name of Robert Karras says, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal at a meal or coming back from a meal. If you have a look through Luke, and we're going to do that over the next few weeks, you'll see Jesus had a lot of meals in the Gospels. So today we're going to start this sermon series that we're calling Meals with Jesus. The idea is actually taken from this book called A Meal with Jesus um, and uh, by a guy by the name of Tim Chester. And in this book, um, Tim talks about Jesus' mission. His mission to to seek and to save the lost. And how Jesus does this, how Jesus demonstrates this by bringing people together, going out with people, seeing people and saying, let's have a meal, calling Zacchaeus down from a tree. I want to go to your house and have a meal. He was really upfront with his request to, to go and eat with people. We're going to see the things that Jesus valued looking at the different meals that Jesus had with people. Meals that will show us more about who Jesus is, will show us the things that Jesus values, the people that he wanted to be with. All the stories that we are look at, bar one, are from the Gospel of Luke. And as we delve into these stories, as we begin to see what that, what's going on, in these meals that Jesus has, we'll see how meals and hospitality are opportunities that provide us and teach us about grace and mission and community. So this morning, it's the meal that Jesus had with Levi, with Levi the tax collector. So if you've got your Bibles, I invite you to uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Just a few verses um, in this story that we're going to have a look at this morning. Luke chapter 5 and reading from verse 27. If I can get my clicker to work. There we go. Luke 5 from verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This story in Luke is a meal of grace. 
a meal of grace, a meal that Jesus had in this tax tax collector's house. And in that meal demonstrated grace. The verse begins with the phrase after this, in verse 27. After this. Whenever we see a phrase like this, the beginning of a a passage in the Bible or a story, we need to stop and think what's going on. Often you'll see the word therefore. And the first thing you need to look to do when you come to a passage that starts therefore, you need to look, well, why is this therefore? Why is this there? What is that word therefore? Because there's something happening before it. We've got to know what's happening there so we know what's going on here. Well, this word isn't therefore, this is after this. So what is going on before? What's happening after or before this passage that we're looking at? Jesus is in Galilee, a place that he spent a lot of time at. Beginning of, if you look back in in chapter 5, you'll see where he's, he's standing here at, it's called the Sea of Gennesaret, it's the Sea of Galilee, a lake, a big lake in this province of Galilee. And Jesus is there. And he comes to this lake and he sees some fishermen um, at, at the edge of the, of the lake washing their nets. They've been out all night, they're washing their nets. And Jesus asked for one of the guys, a guy by the name of Simon, a guy who became Peter, um, to take him out on the boat. And there in the boat he began to teach the people who had gathered around the shores of this lake. And as they finish up, Jesus says to Peter, or to Simon, Simon, throw your nets in. Now Simon and the other fishermen in that area had been out fishing all night and had caught nothing, absolutely nothing. They were washing empty nets. And Jesus, not a fisherman, he's a carpenter, says, throw your nets in. And Peter does, he throws them in. And suddenly this, this huge haul of fish is caught in his nets, so big that he calls out to the other fishermen, hey, bring your boats out, you've got to help me get this, this net, this um, catch in. Such a big catch, the net starts to break. They make their way to the shore and Jesus says to Simon and his other fishermen friends, come, follow me. They leave their nets and come and follow Jesus. And then we see further on in this chapter, after that episode at the lake, Jesus heals two men. The first is a man with leprosy. Lepers were shunned by society. Lepers could not live with their families. They were sent out. They lived on the rubbish heap of the town, isolated. They were untouchable, despicable people, outcasts. And what does Jesus do? He comes to the man and he touches him. No one ever touches a leper. Jesus touches this man and heals him. And a little bit later, he's at a house, this house where people have come to hear Jesus um, teach. So many people, that the house is bursting at the seams, out the doors, peering through the windows. And four mates come along with a friend who's paralysed to see Jesus. They can't get in. And I look out there, outside this house, thinking, what are we going to do? And one of the men says, I've got an idea. Let's take our mate Benjamin, whatever his name was, up onto the roof, we'll pull the roof apart and we'll lower him down. It's outrageous. 
it's um, pretty scary for the house owner, guys thinking what they're going to do, but that's what they do. They lower Jesus down. Jesus makes, uh, this man makes his way from the ceiling down to the floor. Jesus sees the man and says, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees are watching. How dare you say that? They say to Jesus. And so Jesus says to the man, well, I can't say your sins are forgiven. I can, but perhaps this will be better. You're healed. Get up and walk. And the man gets up and walks. All this is happening at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is establishing himself as a, as a rabbi, as a teacher. And, and in doing that, showing the sort of people that Jesus is going to associate with. Jesus is going to call around him. He's putting himself out there. He's showing that he is about mixing with the common people. Mixing with fishermen. Smelly, stinky, rough, uncouth, not very well respected people in the society. Mixing with um, disease-ridden lepers. Telling a, a, a crippled man, your sins are forgiven and healing him. The Pharisees are getting antsy about what they've seen so far in these stories. Imagine how they're going to react when they see what Jesus is doing now. Jesus is about to associate with the lowest of society, the scum of Jewish society. Because Levi is a tax collector. Now, I don't think um, the ATO is probably most people's favourite government department. I'm sorry if anyone here works for the, um, for the ATO. But in Jesus' day, the tax collectors were the worst. Jewish people hated tax collectors. It was so, they were the, the worst they could imagine a person could be. Remember, Israel at this time was under Roman rule. Not only did that mean that someone else was in, over, overseeing all that you did, controlling all that you did, but this Roman power demanded taxes. And so they had to pay taxes to this empire that they hated. And the Romans made it even more, more despicable by using Jews to collect the taxes for them while in their different provinces, or in this case in Israel. They had a, the Romans had a, a system... Um, called tax farming. A little bit like um, uh, when you have a franchise, like a Jim's Mowing franchise, they would, look for, they would put the bid out and say, who wants to, to raise taxes for us? The highest bidder got the job of collecting taxes for that part of, of the province. The Romans, um, they would come into, a, into, into an area that assess the tax that they wanted for that particular province based on what was going on in, in, the, in the place, set a figure and then these tax collectors could, um, could collect that money, would have to collect that money for the Romans, but then keep a bit for themselves. And so if you, once they worked out what they needed, they would just work out, oh, I'm going to make this sort of a margin, that's what I'm going to charge. Send in each year the Rome, to the Romans what they had to pay, what that assessed was the tax for that area, the tax collector kept the rest. And the people had no idea what they were supposed to be paying. There was no website they could go to to see what the current rate was, was for tax. It wasn't posted anywhere. They had no option but to pay whatever the tax collector was demanding. 
And, and, and there were, were two categories of taxes in the land. The first was the, the, the main category of taxes had a few um, components to it. There were things like a poll tax where all the men aged um, 14 to 65 had to pay a certain amount. If you're a woman, it was when you were 12 to 65. I'm not sure why they got taxed earlier in their life. There was a ground tax which required um, 10% of all the grain um, that you, you sold, 10% went to the government. There was um, tax on oil and wine, that was a little bit lower. Tax on fish, so probably in Capernaum where Jesus is now, all those fishermen were taxed pretty heavily for their, their fish that they caught. And finally there was an income tax, 1% of any money that you earned in an income was, was, was taxed. And there wasn't much wriggle room in that category of taxes for the tax collectors to inflate it and charge extra. People kind of had an idea what they were expected to pay, it was always the same rate, um, and then a little bit more would, be, would go to the tax collector. These tax collectors were called the Gabi, the chief tax collectors. Remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was one of these tax collectors. This is what he, the taxes he collected. They were legitimate businessmen, um, that was their job and um, they weren't defrauding the system too, too greatly. But they were still hated, but not hated the most. The worst, the most hated tax collectors were those that collected the second tier of taxes, the duties. And these were called the mochists. Mochists were small operators, far less regulated. They exploited the system as far as they could. There were duties on everything, on using the roads, crossing a bridge, docking your boat at the harbour. There were sales tax, there were import tax, export taxes. A tax was even paid on a cart and depended how many wheels were on that cart, how much you paid. And these tax collectors, they would roam the countryside thinking where the most people are at the moment. Let me go there. I'll set up my booth. I had a good chance of making a few shekels out of this. This is where I'll collect my taxes for today. And so you could be going down a road, a road that you've gone down all your life, never been taxed, and suddenly you turn a corner and there's a tax collector in his booth with his hands out wanting some money. And they could force you to empty all your produce, all the things you're carrying on your back onto the ground and they would go through it and tax it for whatever amount they wanted. If you couldn't pay, they'd offer you a loan at good interest rates or they'd have a guard who would take you off to prison right away. These were shameless extortionists. These were thugs the scum of society, the lowest of the lowest in Hebrew society. Levi was one of these tax collectors, one of the most hated people in all of the culture. Now you probably didn't come to church this morning thinking that you were going to have a bit of a lecture on first century taxation. <laughs> but I wanted to share that with you just so you get a feel for the hatred people had for Levi. No one liked him. The only people who liked him was probably his mother and 
other tax collectors because they're all in this together. You imagine being one of Levi's, Levi's mates growing up. These people knew each other. It was a small town, small area. You went to school with Levi. You had lunch with him. You ate your sandwich with him during lunchtime. You played footy during lunchtime. After school, you went home and built a fort and played Roman soldiers. You were best mates. You went off and became a fisherman or a carpenter or whatever you did. Levi headed to the tax department. He became a tax collector. And here he is now, robbing you poor and making an immense wealth for himself. You would not like to see Levi on the streets. Levi, um, the, the tax collectors were considered as vermin. They were Roman collaborators. They were traitors. They couldn't be a witness in a court of law because they were so untrustworthy and so despised. They weren't even allowed to go to synagogue. They were, were almost banned from their religion. And yet this is the person Jesus sees at his booth, comes up to him and says, Levi, follow me. In Mark's account of this story, if you go and check out that, Jesus is actually walking along the Sea of Galilee when he sees Levi. Maybe Levi had come down here to the lake because he knew there were lots of people there. The fishermen were doing well, or had been doing well up until that night, um, and puts his booth up to make some money. Some biblical scholars think that Levi actually um, travelled alongside Jesus, watching from a distance, going where the crowds were, setting up booths wherever Jesus went to make tax money out of the crowds. If you watch um, The Chosen, anyone seen The Chosen? You kind of see Levi doing exactly that, looking from the sidelines, watching, um, hated by those around him, but he's there all the same. And maybe he was even here at the beginning of chapter 5 and saw this huge catch of fish and thought, aha, this is my day. What am I going to charge? And the little shekel signs start ticking away in his mind and he sits down to bring in the loot for that day. But as Levi is, is travelling around, maybe watching Jesus, listening to Jesus, he also got to hear what Jesus was saying. Hearing truths that had never heard before. All his professional life, all he had heard was, Levi, we hate you. Levi, you are the worst. You are headed for hell. And we're glad. That's what Levi was hearing all the time. And suddenly he hears something different coming out of Jesus' mouth. He hears words of love, words of grace, words of forgiveness. And Levi had never heard that before. He had been told that it would be impossible for God to forgive him. He was so bad. He was beyond redemption. And Jesus taught the exact opposite. So Levi keeps showing up, keeps hearing these words of Jesus. 
I doubt Levi's presence bothered Jesus too much, but it certainly bothered the crowds. But then Jesus does this, this, this remarkable thing. He could have gone up to Levi. You see other ways Jesus confronts injustice in the Gospels. And he could have said, Levi, you're, the, the life you're living is so contrary to God. You're showing greed. You're, you're defrauding the people. Your, your lifestyle needs to change. That's what Jesus could have said. But he doesn't. He comes up to Levi and he says, Levi, follow me. I want you to be with me. I want you to be on my team. It's incredible what Jesus did that day in Galilee. And the amazing thing is, Levi drops everything and goes. Leaves everything to follow Jesus. Because Jesus acknowledges him. Jesus calls him. Jesus shows love, compassion to Levi. Jesus wants him to be part of his life. And I imagine within a few minutes, the whole town knows about what low-life Levi has done. And they can't believe it. Is this going to last? Is Levi just going to go, and go along for a bit until he gets more money and then go back to his other ways? Little did they know that this Levi would become Matthew. Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples. Matthew, the writer of the first gospel in the Bible, the New Testament. So what a, what, what a, a, a turn of events happens this day in Capernaum. Of all the people in this town, this area, Levi, the most unlikely, the most unacceptable person, becomes one of Jesus' followers. Jesus seeks out the man most people didn't want, the one everybody wished the worst for. But this has become one of the trademarks of Jesus' ministry, seeking out, chasing, befriending, showing compassion to the worst sinners, the despised in the society, the Mary Magdalene's, the prostitutes, the lepers, the cripples, stinky fishermen, low-life tax collectors. Jesus saw in Levi a man who needed his grace. He saw a man who was beyond what he saw right there, a man who could become something better, something different. Centuries ago, um, some workmen were dragging a huge block of marble um, from the, the mining place where they mined all these, the, these mar- this marble in Carrara in northern Italy to the town of Florence. And it was coming into Florence for another uh, a sculpture to create um, a, a, a piece of, of art based on an Old Testament prophet. The problem was this block of marble had a deficiency, had, had a flaw in it. And when the sculptor Dantonelli saw this piece of marble on the floor, he said, no, I don't want it. It's not good enough. And so they took this block of marble and put it at the back of the cathedral in a, in a yard and there it was just, it sat. Until another sculpture, sculptor came along, had a look at it and thought, I can see what I can do with this. 
I can see something in this. And so he took her back to his studio and spent the next two years crafting this sculpture. And on the day that it was to be unveiled, artists and sculptors gathered around, famous people like Leonardo da Vinci, Botticelli, and as the cloth fell off this block of marble, the room erupted in gasps and choruses of praise. It was a masterpiece and it's still regarded as a masterpiece today. This statue, the statue of David, one of the greatest works of art the world has, has seen. Jesus saw the flaws in Matthew's life. They were obvious. He knew what sort of person Matthew was, Levi was. But he saw in Levi Matthew the evangelist, Matthew the gospel writer. And Jesus still sees men and women today beyond their flaws to what they can become. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Jesus sees us like no one else sees us. He looks beyond our flaws, beyond our failings, beyond our mistakes, beyond the mess that we make of our lives. And he calls us as we are with all those flaws, with all those faults. He accepts us, he forgives us, and he begins to do his work in us to make us this creation that he can see beyond the flaws. And in his grace, he reshapes us, he refines us, he reworks us, he creates us into something new, something beautiful. Levi's life was revolutionised that day. And so he decides to put on a great banquet, a feast to show his appreciation for what Jesus has done for him, uh, a celebration of this new life that he now has, leaving the tax-collecting life behind, now a life following Jesus. And so in verse 29, then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. So Levi invites all his friends. Levi leaves his, his old life, this life of a tax collector, but he doesn't leave his friends. He stays connected with the people that have been his, his workmates. He leaves his old ways, but not his friends behind. And he invites these friends to come to his house for a banquet. He goes to his friends, the same people who are just like him, and says, Come to my house. I want you to meet Jesus. Jesus has changed my life. I want you to experience what I've experienced as well. Come and hear about Jesus. Come and see him for who he is. The Pharisees, um, in the next verse, in verse 30, refer to these guests that Levi has as sinners and tax collectors. It's funny how they... They isolate 
tax collectors out of those sinners. They are worse than the sinners. They are tax collectors. But they look at these people, sinners for them are anyone who doesn't follow their rules. Anyone who doesn't keep their traditions are sinners, the worst. These people despised the social pariahs of Capernaum. And there's Jesus reclining amongst them, laughing, talking, eating, drinking, mixing with these despicable people. Verse 30, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? This was, this was too much for these upright, you know, righteous men of the faith. Now, we'd assume the Pharisees were kind of watching this from outside, looking in. They wouldn't go into this house because then they'd be just like Jesus, contaminated by these wicked people, ritually unclean, unable to go to the synagogue. To them, what Jesus was doing, this one who claimed to be a teacher of the law, was, was unforgivable. He was bringing the whole profession of being a teacher of the law into disrepute by mixing with these people. How dare he, they'd say. What are you doing, Jesus? Eating and drinking, having fun with these people, hanging out with these, the worst of society. Jesus is in the business of handing out invitations. His invitations say, come, follow me. He invites Levi. Levi invites his friends. The invitations to Jesus' party says, come as you are. For the Pharisees, they say, you're not good enough. You've got to clean yourself up. Get ready to come. You cannot come as you are. You've got to change. You've got to get cleaned up before you come. I want to share with you a story that um, Tim Chester has in, in this opening chapter of his book um, to give you an example of what, was, what can go on today as much as it was going on in the time of Jesus. It's the story of a couple called, um, I was going to say Saul, it's Saul, Saul and Pilar Cruz. Uh, Saul and Pilar have a ministry to um, the people of the slums of Mexico City. Saul was, was brought up in a, in a Christian family, um, well-to-do family, good, proper, evangelical family, attended a good and proper evangelical church. Pilar was converted through a Bible study that Saul was, was leading. Um, Saul's mother wasn't too happy with this relationship that was developing between her son and this girl. This girl wore very short skirts, high heels, um, and it wasn't proper for her to be her son's girlfriend. It wasn't how a good middle-class evangelical Mexican Christian was supposed to dress. Saul's mother noticed that Pilar um, was, had stopped attending church on, on Sunday mornings and she thought, aha, my suspicions were right. This girl is not good enough for my son. And so 
Saul decided one Sunday that he would follow Pilar to see where she went on a Sunday morning. And he noticed he got onto a bus and went to a very poor part of the city. He followed behind her. And as she got off the bus, she met up with this old man, an elderly gentleman. And together they started running an impromptu Sunday school class on the streets of this slum in Mexico City. A, a, a class for the children of the, the families that lived in this slum. And after a while, Pilar came over to where Saul was standing. She'd seen him watching from the sideline and she said, you might as well come and join us. And Saul came along and started participating in this Sunday school class. And she later explained to Saul why she wasn't attending church on a Sunday where his parents and he attended. She said, if Jesus is saviour, then he's saviour of these people as well. And your church is doing nothing to reach them. And so Saul and Pilar started um, attending another church um, in a poorer neighbourhood, but the people who went to that church were more affluent. They didn't live in that area. They they came to this area to to, uh, lead these church services. And Saul and Pilar started ministering amongst these poor people um, in the neighbourhood, reaching out to prostitutes and drug addicts, befriending them, serving their needs, sharing the gospel with them. And some of them started attending the church in this neighbourhood. And then one Sunday morning, Saul and Pilar and their friends came to the church and found the building was locked and discovered that without any consultation with any of them, the church members had decided they weren't going to have church here anymore because people were coming they didn't want. They didn't like. They were scared their children would be contaminated by these people. And so they decided to move their church to another part of town. The culture gap between the church and the marginalised becomes so great that it was too big for the church members to to accommodate. And so Saul and Pilar started another church. Some people gave them a rubbish dump that they could use. As they went to this rubbish dump, built a church on this property, called it an Urban Transformation Centre under the name of Ammonia on a rubbish dump. Sounds interesting name. They didn't call it a church because of the negative connotations people had in the slums towards that word. Now we might look at the story of the Pharisees, what's going on here in Luke, the story of Saul and Pilar, and think, how could they? How could people be so um, judgmental, so self-righteous? We would never act that way. But do we? We come to Christ. We desire to live good lives, wholesome lives. We seek out people like us. We attend groups that are 100% Christian. We send our kids to Christian schools. We play basketball or soccer with Christians. We go to dinner with Christians. We go on holidays with Christians. We live in Christian communities. 
We have Christian doctors, Christian dentists, Christian vets. Even our dogs are Christian. And the result is, the longer we're Christians, that circle of non-Christian, non-church people becomes smaller and smaller. We live our lives isolated as Christians without noticing people around us, without noticing the need they have to know Jesus, without thinking, what can I do to introduce Jesus to them? We're not Pharisees in our thinking, but sometimes we become Pharisees in the way that we act. And I find that a constant challenge for myself. I, um, as someone who's involved in Christian work, I, I was working in banking and exporting before uh, we went to Bible college, which was about two years after we were married. For the last 40 years almost, I have done nothing but Christian work, Christian ministry. My work is among Christian people. My friends are Christians. I have very few non-Christian friends. Before COVID, I decided I'll try and do something to increase my, my um, network of people that don't go to churches. So I joined a bird-watching club, local one in the Yarra Valley, and went on a few outings to try and get to know people as they did bird watching. We did it together. Um, you don't talk a lot, but there's a chance afterwards to talk once you get back to your place where you're going to have lunch. But then I discovered that most of their outings on a Sunday. Oh, Sunday's a work day for me. I can't go to those, those events anymore. But I'm constantly thinking, how do I find ways to engage with other people that don't come to church? We need to be intentionally reaching out to people who don't know Jesus, especially, especially if we've been Christians for a number of years. As our circle becomes, of non-church people becomes smaller and smaller, or can become smaller and smaller. Reaching out to those with whom we work. Reaching out to those we go to uni with, that we live down the street with. Having meals, attending sports events together having them over. We need to be reaching out to those around us who are hurting, the marginalised, people, a single mum who needs a room, adjusting, or coming along to the well who help on a Tuesday morning, getting involved in the community, even if it means adjusting our lifestyle to make that happen. To be the people outside these walls that can share Jesus with them, who can be Jesus to them in their situation, in their life. To be the Levites. We go to be, to be Jesus to the Levites of the world. Now, the Pharisees, when they saw Jesus doing this, they were shocked. They weren't brave enough to go to Jesus and confront him. So they go to the disciples here in Luke and Mark, Mark says they actually went to Jesus and said this, but Luke says they went to, to the disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus responds to their grumblings in verse 31. Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. This is apparently a, a, a common, well-known proverb of Jesus' day. The doctor needs to visit the sick. The one who is complete needs to visit the one who is broken. 
The one who is joyful should go to the morning. The strong should go to the weak. History records that when Oliver Cromwell Cromwell was uh, ruler of England, there was a crisis. The country ran out of silver, so they couldn't produce coins. And so it's said that Cromwell said to his men, go into the cathedral and see if they've got any silver that we can use. And the men came back and said, the only silver in the cathedral are the statues. And Cromwell's responded, melt down the saints and get them back into circulation. Jesus circulated in his society, especially among those the Pharisees wouldn't go anywhere near. We need to be in circulation today, showing Jesus to those around us. So the first thing Levi Levi does after following Jesus is to throw this great party. Maybe like Levi, when you first became a Christian, you introduced your friends to Jesus. Come and and meet this this Jesus that I've, I've found. But sometimes we begin to lose contact, contact with people who earn our old life. You could say it that way. Perhaps church has become so busy for us, meetings and things to attend. Perhaps our new behaviour, our new way of life means we don't want to mix with those people anymore. Maybe people have said, oh, don't go with them because I'll contaminate you back into the old life. But those who avoid contamination of sinners are like the Pharisees. Those who earn the label the friend of sinners are just like Jesus. So Jesus completes his response to these Pharisees in verse 32. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. There's a bit of irony here in what Jesus is saying. The Pharisees thought they had it all together. They had religion down to a fine art, obeying all these rules that are put in place to say, look, I'm righteous because I followed these rules. But they were just like the needy tax collector, just like the sinners, but they didn't know it. And Jesus is saying in a not too subtle way to these Pharisees, to people who think they're righteous, I have nothing to say. But I've come to those who know they're not righteous to save them. So who are the sick? Who are those who need a doctor? Jesus is talking about you and me. Paul says in Romans chapter 3 verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. John MacArthur says this, the Christian life is not for good people, it's for sinners. Levi was the worst sinner of his day. And we too are often the worst sinners. Maybe you're thinking, well, how am I the worst sinner? I get the tax collectors. Yep, they're obviously sinners. I get the Pharisees and their arrogance and their self-righteousness. But how am I the worst of sinners? We like to compare ourselves to other people. Let's notice the clock and think, well, we've gone way over time here. I'll try and get through this quickly. This man, Robert um, Wadlow, was the tallest man who ever lived. When he was eight, 
He overtook his father and towered over his four young siblings. At the age of 17, he passed the eight feet mark, becoming the tallest teenager. And when he last was measured in June 1940, Wadlow stretched a staggering 8 feet 11 inches, almost 9 feet. 2.72 metres for those of you who think metric. I'm still thinking feet when it comes to size. I'm 5 foot 11 and a half. Today I would be 6 feet. I say I'm 6 feet. If I was to stand next to Wadlow and ask you, who's the tallest? Pretty obvious, wouldn't it? It's this guy here. But if I say to you, which of us could touch the moon? Well, Wadlow would be a little bit closer to the moon, but in the scheme of things, neither of us can touch the moon. Imagine if all of us, one of us, was to stand next to Levi, or the worst, the most despicable person in history you can think of. Who's the least less sinful between you and whoever you've imagined is the most wicked person in the world. You say, it's not me, it's got to be him, it's got to be her. I'm not a mass murderer, I haven't done these terrible things. I've never been to jail. But if we look at the Bible's perspective, if we compare ourselves to God's righteousness, who God is, we miss the mark completely. No one is perfect. We are all sinners. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. This is Paul who wrote most of the New Testament saying, I am the worst of sinners. We all fall short and miss God's standards. But the good news is Jesus came to save us from our sins. Jesus came to take the punishment we deserved as the worst sinners. At Levi's party, Jesus comes crashing in to the world of the Pharisees and their self-righteousness, their pride, their hypocrisy with his message of God's grace. Jesus has come for losers, for people on the margins, for people who have made a mess of their lives, for people who are ordinary, for people like you, for people like me. And God invites each of us to his table. He invites the best and the worst, the highest and the lowest. He invites us. Jesus invites us to his table of grace this morning. Before he was arrested in his final hours, before he took the final walk to the cross, Jesus is reclining at a table with his friends, again having a meal, this time the Passover. And as the meal progresses, Jesus takes two emblems. Emblems of this, this, this meal, they've, they've participated in every year at this time of their lives. The bread and the wine. And as he prays over these, as he gives, thank, gives thanks to God for these emblems, what they represent to the Jewish people of their escape from Egypt. 
he says to the disciples, whenever you eat this bread, whenever you drink this cup, remember the sacrifice I'm going to be making for you. Remember my body hung on the cross for your sins. Remember my blood that's going to be shed for you as a way of opening up this new relationship to the presence of God, a new relationship with God. So this morning we are invited to come to this table of grace, this table of remembrance, and remember again the gift that Jesus has given us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That's the song Levi could have sung. The worst of the worst now has a new life in Jesus. Saved by grace. That's our song as well. Sinners saved by grace. In a moment I'm going to pray. Then I'm going to invite you to um, go to one of the tables. We've got a table here, one at the back, or two, on one over the side over here. And take the emblems, take a, a, a piece of uh, cracker in the paper cups and a, one of the glass cups as well. Take them back to your seat. Eat the bread in your own time. And then together we will partake of, of the grape juice together. Um, so free to move in just a moment. If you see people around you that maybe can't manage that on their own, offer to help and get the, the emblems for them and take them back to the seat. But let me pray before we move to those, those um, tables. Father God, we thank you that we have been saved. Thank you for rescuing us, the worst of the worst. No matter what our life might be, You've taken it, you've you've breathed new life into it through Jesus' death on the cross and the life we have in him. Lord, as we partake of these emblems today, remind us again of the great gift Jesus has given us, this gift of grace in his life for our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please come forward and um, take the emblems.
going to partake of the cup together. Jesus said, this is the new cup of my covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Father God, thank you again for, for Jesus. Thank you for our Saviour. Thank you for the one who rescues us and redeems us. Thank you too for the story of Levi, the story of a, a wretched man saved by grace, invited to your table of grace. Thank you, Father, that Jesus saves us, rescues us from sin, our despair, for, for his forgiveness, for giving us life, hope, a future with you. Thank you for counting us as righteous despite our sin. And Lord, as we live, work and play amongst broken people, amongst people who don't know you, people who are lost, people needing hope, help us to have a heart for them as Levi had for his friends. Help us to be inviting, to invite them into our lives, to invite them to your table. And Lord, help us to do that as a church as well. Thank you for your saving grace in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.